I've felt in this process by setting 75% of the parcel aside with our focus on not having impacts to the wildlife in that area was we led with that. We care about it. And uh, we have communicated with our elected officials that we're ready and willing to sit down and talk with them on all potential ways to, to get more affordable housing units here in the community. If, if we don't have affordable housing here where, where our employees work, they're, they're now commuting. And we start our shifts at 6.30 in the mornings. And when you add a commute of a 45 minutes to an hour on each end of a day, add weather to it, it's uh, it's tough to attract employees to do that. And it's uh, not the best experience for those wanting to work here. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Vail Mountain turns 60 years old this year. And this is a perfect time to check in on the flagship resort of the largest company in skiing. First, if you're new here, I am so pumped to have you, but I want you to know that the podcast is just a small part of the storm. The heart of this whole operation is the Storm Skiing newsletter, and you can sign up for that at stormskiing.com to get that directly to your email inbox. If you're just listening to this pod, you are not going to get the full experience. We go deep today on Vail's master plan and on their two new chairlifts this year. And I have all of those maps and reference documents and additional context in the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. The newsletter is where I'm exploring the world of lift served skiing all year long. And if you're listening to this podcast, if you like this podcast, I think you will really like the Storm Skiing newsletter. Also, you can follow along with the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Okay, let's talk about a service that I use every single day of the winter, open snow. It's here. Ski season is off to a great start in pretty much every region with new resorts opening daily. That means many of us have choices and we want to know where the snow is coming and when. Personally, I live within a five hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. Is Western New York getting hammered? Is the J cloud activating? Is a sneaky Southern storm going to pull me into Pennsylvania or West Virginia? Or can I make do with the Catskills, Poconos or Berkshires? It's more that I can sort through myself, frankly. That's why I use open snow. Outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models, updated hourly, resort by resort snow outlooks, and one of my favorite features, frequent email updates focused on the region of your choice. For me, I rock the Mid-Atlantic, New England, and all US emails, but you can choose from more than two dozen daily snows, focused on regions as varied as British Columbia, Colorado, Southern California, or Idaho, or on specific mega resorts such as Jackson Hole or Mammoth. Open Snow is now a storm partner, but I have used Open Snow for years, and now you can too. Test drive Open Snow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash storm skiing. That's opensnow.com backslash storm skiing. All right, now for my OG sponsor, Mountain Gazette. No matter how hard I hammer you with this, 
and I've been hammering you with this for two years now, it's not going to whack you on the head until Mountain Gazette drops on your doorstep. Issue 198 worked its way to me recently, and wow. First, the cover. Seth Morrison crushing pow in skinny skis, old school style, as captured long ago by photographer Scott Markowitz. That shot tagged an enormous spread on one of the greatest and most iconic skiers of all time. And then, did you know there are 22 ski areas in Greece? In Greece, there are amazing pics to prove it too. Then, writer and snowboarder Dave Zook gives us a deep meditation on what it means to compete in and ultimately retire from the competitive freeride circuit. And the photo profile of Trevor Kinnison, who's living an inspirational life in a sit-ski after a spinal cord injury, is unforgettable. This thing takes some left turns too. We explore nudist lifestyle, Saudi Arabia, and the tragic end to the life of cyclist Mariah Wilson. But you do really have to see it to understand how good this thing really is. My man Mike Rogie, who had the vision to bring Mountain Gazette back from the dead two years ago, laid this out beautifully in the latest issue when he writes, quote, a firm belief developed for me recently. Folks need to see Mountain Gazette in real life. Then and only then do they get it, end quote. Look, that's real, that's accurate. This thing is incredible. It is the best outdoor print mag going and you can get in on it by subscribing at mountaingazette.com. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 108, Beth Howard, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Vail Mountain, Colorado. 60 years ago, a group led by World War II veterans, Pete Cyber and Earl Eaton, founded Vail Mountain. Both had trained in the area as members of the legendary 10th Mountain Division and shared a conviction that this would be the perfect place to build a ski resort. And so Vail was born. Not just the resort, but the town. There was nothing there in 1962. No Vail Village, no infrastructure, no interstate. It would be more than a decade before I-70 and the completion of the Eisenhower Tunnel really opened Vail Mountain up to the world. What had been raw wilderness slowly emerged as one of the best ski areas in North America and eventually became the flagship resort of the largest ski area operator on the planet. Vail Mountain remains a singular place. The snow is reliable and the skiing is grand. But a 60-year-old community is still a relatively new community and growing pains persist. The Epic Pass has eased access but has stressed the surrounding infrastructure all around the mountain. Housing, always tight, has reached crisis levels. The town, meanwhile, has made it clear that it cares more about bighorn sheep than about people fighting Vail Mountain's plan to build a 165-bed employee housing unit in Eastvale, even as single-family mansion development continues on adjacent parcels. But Vail Mountain continues to evolve with two new lifts this year and a long-term focus on improved snowmaking. So much to talk about here. Let's do it. My guest today is the Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Vail Mountain, Colorado. With 5,317 acres of skiable terrain, served by 35 lifts on a 3,450-foot vertical drop, 
Vail is one of the largest ski areas in the United States. Vail Mountain averages 354 inches of annual snowfall. Founded in 1962 by World War II and 10th Mountain Division veteran Pete Siebert, Vail Mountain is the original ski area and namesake of Vail Resorts, which now operates 41 ski areas on three continents. Prior to taking the top job at Vail Mountain in 2019, she held the same role at neighboring Beaver Creek in Colorado and, before that, at North Star in California. She has worked at Vail Resorts for 38 years. Beth Howard is my guest. Beth, welcome to the storm. I cannot tell you how pumped up I am to talk Vail Mountain with you today. How are you doing on this mid-November Monday? Well, thank you, Stuart. It's so great to be with you today. I'm doing awesome. It's snowing here in Vail and it's cold, so that's that's a good day. And you opened for the season on Friday. I believe that may have been your earliest opening ever. Is that the case? And how did that first weekend of skiing going go? Yes. I mean, we did open Friday. It's one of our earliest openings in history. It was a lot of fun. We had so many people gather at the bottom. We had music and and uh, debuted our strudels and everything else and opened with 100 acres, which is one of our best wow. opening packages we've had. So uh, always fun to open the resort. I've done it for many, many years, and it's always always as exciting as ever, and it's great to be open in, uh, for the season. And that November 11th opening, that chased a May 1st close to the 2021-22 to 22 ski season. That was the latest that Vail Mountain has ever closed in its 59-year history. What inspired you to push the season so late in 2022, Beth? Well, we had come off of you know two really challenging years during – the pandemic and uh, the conditions were such last year that we said, hey, we can extend the season into May 1st, all the way to May became our rally cry because we really wanted to give back to our employees, our local community members, anyone who could be here uh, in late April so they could really enjoy this mountain. So that was our intent to end on a positive. And throughout the West, the pattern seemed to be you had a really good start to the season, a pretty good November, and then just not a lot of snow until April, and then it dumped. How did that play out at Vail Mountain? Were you able to get some nice late season snow for some good conditions on that closing day? We were. You know, I, I was thinking back to last season, comparing it to this year when we opened, and we had a really warm and dry fall last year, and then it really didn't snow until Christmas. Uh, I think Christmas Eve day it was our first real snow day, and it snowed all the way through. And then everything kind of stabilized with conditions. And then you're, you're right, Stuart, as we got into the spring months in April was some of our best skiing because we had some really strong snowfalls. So I think that even played into uh, our uh, uh, approach of extending the season so everyone could end on a positive. Did you consider extending it even beyond May 1st, or is that just too tough to do from an operational point of view with a mountain of that size? Yes. I mean, May 1st was, you know, that's plenty. I think as we look into it, <laughs> we start to get warmer temperatures typically in May. So we felt that, you know, May 1st, that was a pretty big milestone for us. And it's how the calendar felt, but it, it was awesome. It traditionally Vail in Colorado, because you're not too far from Breckenridge and that's sort of been the late operator. Can we expect to see Vail Mountain try to push into May more frequently? Or was that just a thing where everything kind of went right? The late snow was there and it made sense to do it last year. Yeah, I think it. everything has to line up when we make a, a decision to extend like that into May. I think, you know, we're usually evaluating conditions and long range weather in the February, March time period. So we can see if we could we can make it uh, to an extension. But 
this year we're, we're targeting April 23rd as our closing day, and, and we'll see if conditions are such that we could extend another week, but that's, that's where we are today. You know, as a skier, I always get fired up to see the late closing day, but sitting here from the sidelines, it's very easy to underestimate what it takes to really do that. So when you step back and think about the number of employees you need from patrol to grooming to lifties and, and everything out and people to park the cars, what does it take? What did it take actually just from a, from a human resources point of view to push veils to that May closing last year? Well, I think a lot of things come into consideration when we make that decision. First and foremost, we need to have the conditions to to have a good product out there. And then typically we are, when we are in an extension week, we're on a smaller footprint than what we've been operating during the season. So it's almost, uh, in a way, we've been operating at such a big scale when we go into that closing week with the smaller acreage and lifts, it's, it's not as heavy as of a lift for all of us, but I also need to ensure that I've got the safety personnel, patrol, everyone to, to still deliver a great experience that last week. So everything comes into consideration. So when you have these lift operators and some of these other employees that may be seasonal, do you have a lot of eager takers to say, yeah, I'll, I'll stay around another week and ski more? Or, or is, it, is it tougher to find people and maybe they already have plans and are ready to move on to their summer jobs or, or whatever adventure they have next? I think we see uh, all of those things. You know, Some people had already planned their vacations, so they, they want to stay to that schedule. A ton of employees said, oh, this is awesome because they get to stay another week. Uh, make another paycheck, get to ski the mountain when Harley wins here. So uh, I see, you know, we had uh, all different types of reactions, but I'd say for the most part, very, very positive. So you've pushed the season on both ends here, and and that's a really nice milestone to mark, as I mentioned in the introduction, the 60th year since Vail Mountain's founding. Talk us through this, Beth. How is Vail Mountain marking its 60th anniversary this year? Well, it couldn't be uh, a more exciting year for all of us. We're just going to have a year of fun and celebration and, and really recognize our founders and the legacy of Vail. And uh, we've got some big things, and then we got some more small touches. Uh, I'd say the big things are our two new lifts that are coming on this year. And, uh, and then we have smaller touches like bringing back ice bars and, uh, and celebrations of uh, music and activations throughout the whole season. So we're we're doing um, a lot of different things throughout the season uh, with the goal that uh, anyone who comes to Vail this year knows we're celebrating a big birthday and that they get to be a part of it. And uh, we just want to have fun. Yeah, I really want to get into those two big lift projects later on. Those are both really exciting. But let's let's go back in time here first, Beth, and talk about Vail Mountain's fo- founders. I mentioned Pete Siever, but he was not the only one involved in this. So lay this out for us. Who founded Vail Mountain? And, and and what is their legacy with the ski area? Yeah, so Pete Seibert and Earl Eaton, uh, his friend, were the, the two that founded Vail Mountain. And, you know, Vail Mountain is Pete's legacy. He was a veteran of World War II in the 10th Mountain Division. He spent that time in Europe uh, when he and Earl came and stood at the back bowls. They had this vision of, of hey, this is a mountain that can provide an experience for the majority of our skiers. Back in the day, um, I would say, you know, skiing seemed to be more geared towards just the experts. And uh, when Pete and Earl were looking at this in the, the back bowls, they said, oh my gosh, this is something that's suitable for, for so many. And uh, they were welcoming to everyone. And I think that's what I remember. I, 
about Pete. Uh, I remember when I was in my 20s, I actually got to spend time with Pete. He was always talking about excellence and that we should always anchor to excellence in all that we do. And I've never forgotten that. So I want to just make this point for the listeners. Vale was not like Aspen or Crested Butte or Steamboat or Breckenridge, where there was a town there, an old mining town or a ranching town, and there happened to be a mountain there and they built a scare around it. Vail was raw wilderness. So talk a little bit about what Vail Mountain in that in the Vail Valley was like when when Pete and Earl first scoped out the site of the ski area and how they built up both the mountain and the town over the decades that came. Yes, I I I had to look at the history books because I came in 85, <laughs> but a lot of great things happened before I got here, but I do remember the stories that our longtime locals tell and our founders is that you know, Vail Mountain started this community. It was the first. And then the the town needed to be created to support the mountain. You know, so it came hand in hand like any community. So uh, so Pete and Earl went out and got financial partners uh, to be able to purchase a permit from the Forest Service to be able to create a, a ski resort. Uh, and that's how I remember the story went. And just a handful of people with a vision and uh, looking at just raw land, which was ranch land, and just all believed. And uh, it is what it is today. Obviously, the ski area operates on Forest Service land. The town, everything at its base, is that also Forest Service land? Uh, it is not. So it's really, if you kind of go to the base areas where the gondolas are, you can. it really kind of starts there and goes up and across uh, both directions, north, south, east, west. And was that the case when they first came across the land, they were able to purchase that land down there and then the, and then lease the rest up on the mountain, the ski runs actually from the Forest Service? Yeah. So there were, yeah, there were two different ways. It was the Forest Service land, which was the actual mountain. And then it was the, uh, the town was on a separate parcel. All right. So we'll get a lot more into the town in a minute here. First, I just want to pause and, and ask you about how Pete and Earl are in their legacy are honored today on the mountain and elsewhere. I, I see looking at Blue Sky Basin, for example, you have Pete's Express Lift and Earl's Express Lift. And my assumption has always been that those lifts are named after the founders. Uh, and, I, and I'm not sure if every Vail skier that's back there really realizes that. But talk a little bit about that and in other places where we may see them honored throughout the resort. Yes, yeah, so we we really want to make sure we never forget our founders. And I would say one of the uh, special things we did last year was we launched a legacy hut at the top of the mountain. And that's really to honor the the history. It goes all the way through the the pre kind of ranch era through Pete and Earl's involvement and the original founders uh, all the way through our current timeline. So that's a very like kind of literal way that we honor our founders in the Legacy Hut. And then we have our mountain host will give free guided tours uh, in the back bowls and talk about the names of the runs and the signs and the lifts. And then we also have legacy stops across the mountain. So you could do a self-guided tour that talks about the why we named a run a certain way, et cetera. There's also one of my favorites is a statue, a beautiful statue uh, at the base of Gondola One in Vail Village of Pete and Earl looking up towards the mountain. And it's probably one of the most photographed sites at the base of the mountain that we have. So it's really awesome. We want to always keep the legacy alive in all that we do. And uh, those are some examples. Where do we find the Legacy Hut, Beth? If you go up to the top of PHQ, uh, top of Chair 4, and take the left. 
and it's a little hut there and very, very popular. So you've not been there since the 60s, but you've been there for a while and, and really been able to watch Vail Valley and Vail Mountain grow. So really, really neat that you've lived and worked there since the 80s with a with a short California break, which we'll talk about later. But take us back here, Beth, to Vail Mountain and Vail Valley in the 1980s. When did you arrive? Where did you come from? And what did the town of Vail and Vail Mountain look like when you got there? Well, I, I arrived in 1985, and, and what brought me to the Vail Valley was a college internship that I had applied for. I had never been to Vail. I did a quick telephone interview and was hired and uh, drove, drove here sight unseen to Vail. And I started my internship chopping vegetables in Beaver Creek at the time. There was a central kitchen there. And then I immediately fell in love with this place. And I thought, well, if uh, I need to find a way to stay here, because <laughs> I didn't want to just do an internship and go back to Iowa, where I grew up on a family farm. That's where I came from. So um, I had saved $1,000 in my savings account uh, from working during my college years, and I needed a place to live. So I put my first and last month's deposit down <laughs> for rent, and I had $200 to my name. Mm. So that's how I started. And I just knew I wanted to live here and I was bound and determined to find a way. So I told my manager, I will work as many hours as you have for me. I worked through that summer, started to put some money away and, and made a life here. So it's a very special place. The Vale Valley was, oh, it was so different back then. It was very small. The town of Edwards didn't yet exist. Avon, just to the west of it, only had a handful of restaurants and businesses. And Beaver Creek, where I was working at the time, was just in its early years of development. So no heated sidewalks. We all parked right up in the village. It was a, it was special. But I do remember Stuart when I, because I was in my twenties, that we were working on the mountain all day, working hard in the restaurants at the time. But we would get when we went into town into Vale Village, it was awesome, and that feeling has has always been there and and has not changed. So that's how it was back in back in the eighties. Were you a skier when you arrived? There's not a lot of skiing in Iowa, but there are there are a handful of ski areas. So had you ever skied? I had skied, but not very much. I wouldn't say I knew how to ski. I was. Um, we grew up in north central Iowa on a family farm, and I had two brothers. And we would save all of our money so we could buy a lift ticket, and we would drive north about three hours to Afton Alps in Minnesota. Oh, nice. Uh, so we would ski once or twice a year pack our sandwiches, eat in the car. And that was my, and I loved it. It was so much fun. And then I was an athlete and loved watching any sports, still do. And we'd watch skiing on wide world of sports. And so I didn't know at the time, but I think it was, skiing was luring me into uh, its arms at that time. But no, I didn't ski when I came out here. I wouldn't call myself a skier. But that's still really cool that you used to go to Afton Alps. I mean, that was at one point a pretty obscure little Minnesota ski area, but now it's owned by Vail Resorts. So how fired up were you when Vail bought Afton Alps? Oh, that was, it was awesome. I, I actually got to go back there. Oh, cool. Because when we acquired Afton Alps, I was in food and beverage and I was integrating, you know, all of the best practices and things. So to go back to Afton after all those years, I, I, it was a, like a time warp because not much had changed. I remember the parking lots, the lifts and it, I just love Afton Alps. And uh, yeah, I was excited to have that in the Vail family. So going back to the 80s here, what was the ski experience like at Vale and Beaver Creek? The, you know, as you said, it was still evolving. Be Beaver Creek had just opened in 1980. So the mountains 
in some ways were smaller. Blue Sky Basin was not yet open. But what was that ski experience like? And what were the crowds like back then? Well, I remember, I mean, the ski experience was always, I don't know, so special because it was both mountains, Vail and Beaver Creek, which were my home mountains here, were were unique in their own ways, but always had wonderful terrain and guest service and all the excellence that Pete Pete's vision was founded on. I, I remember it was incredibly intimate because we weren't very big at the time. If it was a powder day, everyone, I don't know how businesses ran because everyone was on the mountain. <laughs> and, uh, but it was just this fun energy. So if it was a powder day, we'd all go out and take a run or two and then get back to it, right? Because we had a job to do, but it was, it was just fun, fun energy and not as many, you know, amenities and things back then that we have now, of course, as we've evolved, but just really special. So what's it been like to be there and watch firsthand as the town and the valley have grown and as Edwards came online and as Avon, Avon was built up and as Vale Village grew more and more? Well, just take us through how it's changed and what it's been like to be part of that and to watch it. Yeah, It's been incredible to be a part of that. I think when you're in the company and you're growing with it, it doesn't it seems more natural. It, it never felt um, awkward because I never had left. So I, it was just the way we were. So I started when it was just Vail and Beaver Creek, privately owned. And I was growing as a 21-year-old intern into learning operations and that. So as we acquired new resorts, it just felt natural and we got to grow with it. And I think it opened up a lot of doors, not just for me from a career standpoint, uh, but for many others as well. So... You've been in Vail Valley now, if you got there in 1985, 37 years with that two-year break in California. What is special about Vail Valley? What what has kept you there? You know, I, I think a lot of people, they'll come into town and they'll ski bum for a year or two or three or five, but not necessarily stay there for decades and make their life there. What what is What has inspired you to do that? Why are you still there after all these years? Well, I, I think going back to when I, I first arrived here in 1985, it was just, it's beautiful. It's so special. And it was a change of pace from the cornfields and soybean fields that I grew up in. So I thought, well, I want to live in the mountains and just found a way to do it. And I, you know, I met my husband here. We raised our son here. You know, I had a career here, still do. So it was a place I didn't really want to leave and wanted to stay and, and have been able to do that. It's interesting you started on the food service side. And then eventually transitioned to an operations role. Talk about that passion you had for food service and why you started on that side of the business and then ultimately transitioned to more of a total resort role. Yes, thank you uh, uh, for that question. You know, I, I had always had a passion for food and beverage, and that's was my course of study at college and brought me out to Vail to begin with. So I, I had a wonderful almost three decades uh, working in food and beverage with with Vail Resorts, from intern to manager to F and B director, and then ultimately became the vice president of our F and B operations across the company. And that was the point where I realized that I probably reached the pinnacle of what I could do in food and beverage, and I wanted to stay in the business because I loved it so much. And the good news is, during my F and B decades, I was exposed to all aspects of the resort. So, uh, and I became very interested in that. So I, I did a bit of a pivot and uh, communicated to my leader that I was interested in being considered to lead a resort one day and asked what that might take. 
So I really just hunkered down, just owned my development as far as learning more of the mountain operation side of things with uh, snowmaking and fleet and lifts, uh, mountain safety, things like that, which I really hadn't been exposed to. I had extensive operational experience, but not in that area. So our company, you know, we have a strong focus on leadership development. So at that time, I was assigned a mentor, which was Pat Campbell, who was the, at the time, was the acting COO of Breckenridge. She was my mentor. I had a development plan, which was all about focusing on learning the mountain operations side of things. And then I was given a stretch project to lead our snow surface uh, group across the company for a year. So even though I was leading food and beverage at a high, a more corporate level at the time, I was using that time as well to work on my development. So one day I'd hopefully be considered to lead a resort. And then that day came and Northstar was my first GM role. So what was that learning curve like, Beth? Just talk about that a little bit. What what were some of the biggest challenges you faced as you try to come up to speed on all of the things that happen on the mountain? Well, I, I think the, the learning curve was real. Uh, you're never really 100% ready for that next step. And at the same time, I felt confident because I'd had that time, you know, with Pat Campbell as my mentor and, and, and really working on that. So at least I knew the language. I knew when I went in with a new team, I was no longer the expert. Like I'd been in food and beverage. Now I was not the expert because I had the entire resort. So I really went in not acting like I was an expert and had kind of this beginner's mindset of learning and being curious and spending time with everyone. And, uh, you know, the North Star team was wonderful, just uh, welcoming to me, taught me, and then uh, I could lead in a more effective way. So yeah, the learning curve is real, but I think not to fear it, just embrace it and then learn and, and go forward. So that was my approach. So I, I want to go back to the food just for a moment because Vale and Beaver Creek don't quite have the reputation maybe of, of an Aspen, but I've always found the food really good. If someone's listening to this, they're planning a trip to Vale Beaver Creek. Do you have a couple of recommendations for restaurants they can't miss while they're in town? Well, on, on Vale Mountain, I always have to say the 10th. That's our full service, right? The, the Mid-Mountain. And that one's near and dear to my heart because when I was in my food and beverage role, I got to, to concept that and launch it years ago. So that one is very, very special. And uh, that's a not to be missed. And then I think when you're you know, on Beaver Creek, if you have the opportunity to enjoy the cabins, the evening sleigh ride dinners, those were all part of, of my growing up over there and launching those concepts. And they're incredibly special. So lots of good options there. So if my timeline's correct here, in 2014, you finally got that opportunity to lead a resort, takes you out to North Star. So you've spent your career up till this point in Colorado. Suddenly you're working in North Tahoe. What was that transition like to go from Colorado out to California and, and, and work in the industry out there? Well, it was, it was exciting uh, because I'd been, I hadn't lived anywhere other than here all those years. My husband fully supported the move and uh, my son, not quite so much at the time. He was pretty young, <laughs> uh, but, but once he got out there, he absolutely loved it. But it was, I'd say the, the comforting part of a relocation like that after so many years was that it was a mountain town community. It was a mountain that's very familiar uh, and comfortable to me. So that transition was quite smooth. I think what the big change for me was maybe more personally was that I didn't have my community anymore. You know, I'd been so long. I knew everybody, knew where the grocery store was and the post office. And 
I went to uh, Truckee and I didn't know any of that. So you just start from scratch. And, uh, you know, people were so welcoming. And then you start to, you know, establish those connections, get involved in the community. Of course, your resort, uh, that becomes your your work family. And uh, we just loved it there. So what went well for you at North Star and, and what took just a little bit longer maybe to get used to and, and sort out? Well, I think getting used to for me was being the GM of a resort, which was my first experience doing that. So I had to learn how to scale and how to rely on the expertise around me and just lead them. That was a big change because I had been an expert essentially in food and beverage for so many years. So that was a big change and shift and felt a little bit uncomfortable in the moment, but it was that was where my growth my growth occurred. So that was that was a bit of a change there. But it was just uh it was so natural to go in from one mountain community to another and the same company, you know, having the same culture and values just in a different uh region. So talk a little bit, Beth, about the differences between running a resort in Tahoe and running one in Eagle County, just as far as the snow patterns go, the guest visitation patterns go. It's it's a little bit different culture, a little bit different world. It, just talk about those differences a little bit. Yes, I think the biggest difference for me was the weather. <laughs> then, uh, you know, here in Colorado, you know, today it's beautiful snowflakes coming down. Uh, it's more consistent. You get six inches, eight inches. It's just a beautiful, constant kind of refresh of our, our mountain. In Tahoe, well, my first year was an extreme drought year, so mm. we didn't have any snow. But then we get a 100-inch storm. Wow. And so it was very, very extreme. It's much warmer out there. The snow is heavier because of the heavier moisture content. So I had to learn to ski a little bit different in that powder. Um, but I think that that was the big change is that weather and how, how you had to adjust operations depending on, on those snow cycles or, or drought, which I experienced my first year. So you spend two years in running North Star and then the opportunity comes up to return to Colorado. What drew you back to Eagle County to lead Beaver Creek? Well, first of all, we had my family, we had no idea we'd ever come back. You know, it's like, hey, we're going to Tahoe. It's we're all in and put put the Vale and Beaver Creek in the rearview mirror because I didn't want to always be longing, you know, to where I, I kind of grew up in the industry. So we uh, didn't even have I didn't have it on my radar that we would be coming back. But a uh, position opened up, the COO role uh, opened up in Beaver Creek, and I got that opportunity. And I was like beyond excited because I, one, I wasn't thinking that I would have that opportunity. And two, I got to go back to where it all began. That's where I interned. And to become come back as a COO years later, was it was just a dream. Yeah. What did that mean to you to to be able to lead that resort, which is just a it's a really special place. And, and I feel like Beaver Creek gets overshadowed by Vail Mountain a lot. And I made this point in my interview with Nadia Guerrero several months ago is it's really a very unique mountain. There's nothing else quite like it in the United States. Just just talk about Beaver Creek a little bit and, and what it meant to you to be able to lead that mountain where you started your career. Well, Beaver Creek is an incredibly special place. It, it was master planned from every detail. So that that's what's unique about Beaver Creek is that they took the best of all the resorts at the time when we were able to put that into Beaver Creek Resort. So everything from the escalators to how the village lays out, the Villar Performing Arts Center, the lift configuration, restaurants, it was always uh, very thoughtful in from the very day that they started there. So that's what's really special about Beaver Creek. It, it works beautifully. And it's very high touch, wonderful family resort, incredible attention to 
the guest experience and uh, Ed's got World Cup racing on top of it. So it's, it's, just, it's got it all. So compared to North Star, where you go in and you didn't really know anyone, you didn't have that community and you come back to Beaver Creek, was that a little bit smoother transition for you? Or maybe it was just a different kind of challenge because you did know everybody, but now you're the one in charge. Yeah, it, it, I remember coming back and it, it felt like a, a big warm hug, like welcome back to the family. Yeah. So that's how it felt from my employees because I'd known all of them for decades and decades. I think what was probably what I remember is that the community, when I left Beaver Creek, I was still in food and beverage. So they knew me that way. And then I was coming back as the COO, but I had all these strong relationships. So I had great momentum coming back and just reestablishing myself in a different role. And it was really quite, it went quite well. So you come home and then a, a couple of years go by and the opportunity comes up to lead Vail Mountain where you are today. So how did that opportunity come up, Beth? And what made that compelling to you? Well, I think what was happening at that time in our company is that we were continuing to grow. Uh, we had some more acquisitions and our leadership structure had to scale with our growth. So there was some uh, regional leadership org structure changes. And with that, opened up the role here in Vail. And to have that opportunity, again, wasn't on my radar, it, but it's our, it's our namesake resort. And it took me a split second to say, yes, I'm coming 10 miles to the east and couldn't have been more thrilled to be leading Vail Mountain. So it's interesting what you just said, that Vail Mountain is the namesake resort of Vail Resorts. And th this has grown to be a company, as I mentioned in the intro, owns 41 resorts on three continents. This is the third resort that you've run, Beth, and I imagine they all have their unique rewards and challenges. Do you feel a special responsibility running Vail Mountain, given that that is the name on the masthead for the largest ski company in the world? Of course I do. Okay. Uh, you know, I think anyone who's been in this chief operating role for Vail Mountain has probably felt that a responsibility. And, uh, and, but it's okay. You know, you embrace it, you accept it. I think it makes us better because we know everyone's looking to Vail Mountain as the namesake re resort to lead by example, continuing to innovate, be out front and really push forward and just to create the, the best possible experience for our guests who visit here. This is a little off the wall question, but but I, I would be really curious for your thoughts on this. So Vail's always been that alpha resort, right? Obviously it's on the masthead. Then Vail buys Whistler and Whistler is Whistler, right? It's the biggest ski area on the continent. Whistler is just its own thing. And that really is also a flagship resort. Has there been any sort of, uh, I don't want to call it an identity crisis, but is it a little bit weird to kind of share that headliner role with Whistler? Yeah, that's, that is a, that's a great question. I, I haven't felt that personally because Vail is Vail, uh, Vail Mountain. There's nothing like it. And I don't think anything can compare to what we have here, but yeah, Whistler's a, a fantastic place as well. So maybe some people felt that way. I don't know. Um, I, I didn't, uh, but uh, I guess I, that would be a, a feeling that maybe some had. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the mountain here, Beth. As I mentioned in the introduction, just a huge lift fleet at Vail Mountain, uh, something like 35 lifts. I, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't get the exact count right, but that's what it says on your website. <laughs> Two new lifts coming online this year. You have a Game Creek Express upgrade and an all new lift, Sundown Express. I have some specific questions, but break these down for us. What are we getting? What are, what are they replacing in the case of Game Creek? 
And how will these lifts improve the skier experience this year on Vail Mountain? All right. Well, thank you. These are these are the big things happening this year in our anniversary season. I'll start with Game Creek Express. So if you remember, that was a first generation high speed quad. It was installed when I the year I got here in 85. So it was our oldest lift on the mountain. And that's um, incredible signature terrain there. And we wanted to improve, you know, reduce the wait times in that lift, make sure people had a better experience there, more reliability, all the things that come with a brand new lift. So, so that one uh, became uh, a priority for us. So now we have a, a six-person lift coming out of there, or will soon once it's completed. And uh, it's just a great connection to that, that terrain. So that was the, why we picked that one. Is there any, was there any potential or, or any discussion ever of taking Game Creek further down the mountain? Because it's the top of the mountain lift. It serves a, a shorter pod compared to some of the lifts you have there. It's 1,100 vertical feet. Was that ever a possibility to maybe run that lift lower? No, we, we d- didn't really look at that as seeing it would be a significant advantage, you know, to the, the guest experience. We had a good alignment of that chair. We did anytime we get to replace a lift or put a new one in, we do look at the mazes configuration. Can we do some regrading, open it up a little bit, make all that flow better. So we did take that step, but no, I didn't really think about taking that configuration in a different way. So interesting that Vail decided to upgrade this one game Creek from a quad to a six pack. Vail seems to have favored quads for the most part you have 14 high-speed quads in the mountain this is only the fourth six pack what goes into that decision making process when you decide whether you're going to go four or six and ultimately why was six the right choice for game creek well as you said a lot of things go into those decisions but i think our number one goal was to have uh, less wait times enhancing the experience more uphill capacity letting our guests have less time on the lift more time skiing all those things are are guiding principles when we look at at a lift. And I think in this case, going from a, you know, four person to six person, the other six person lifts we have on the mountain work beautifully. And so we had experience and data from those. So uh, we just took that and applied it here. Does the new game Creek run on the exact same line, Beth, with the same load and unload terminals? It does. Although we did lower the upper uh, terminal just a few feet down so we could regrade and make that experience better for guests there was a little bit of an uphill. So we want to make sure anytime um, our guests offloaded there, they were on their way to where they wanted to go and not kind of stuck. And where are we at with Game Creek as of today? Today, we're recording this on November 14th. Uh, we're in the final stretch here of our final lift components have been delivered. All the towers and assemblies are in place. Our rope is staged. Our next phase will be getting, getting the rope on the bull wheel, tensioning the line, doing our load test. And then our ultimate goal of getting our license so we can open it up for the season. Do you think that, do you have a goal date in mind, a target date? Um, I, I, we're looking at mid-December likely, but right now we're just finishing up these components and, but we'll get it as soon as we can get it. How does that compare to a normal year? Is, is Game Creek a lift that you normally try to get online by the Christmas holiday? Is, is it maybe a little bit later from November? Does it start more mid-December normally, or is that a little late for Game Creek? Yeah, historically, Game Creek would open that first or second Saturday of December. That's all on natural snow uh, back there. So it really is, depends on Mother Nature. So that would be our time frame we're looking at again. All right. So tell us about Sundown Express. As I mentioned, this is an all-new lift. 
Yes. And then this one is, is very exciting. I think it adds connectivity to those bowls and to Lion's Head. So to that portal. So I think it's really going to, uh, people are going to love that, that it's connected there and they don't have to go to so many different lifts to, to navigate the mountain and where they want to go. So um, excited for that. Gives us some redundancy with Chair 5 and, and the Sundown Express lift. So uh, excited for that as well. So this is, uh, as you mentioned, it's an express lift. It's a detachable quad. Are we done with fixed grip lifts on Vail Mountain, do you think? Well, going forward, yes. We still have, I think we have one one left. And so we keep that as our nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, as we go forward, it's, it's always, yeah, we're, we're in the high-speed quad and, and six-person lift uh, mode right now. So Sundown Express, that, that's a lift that has been proposed for quite a long time. Why was it finally time to build that lift? Well, I think we're at a point, it had been in our, our master development plan for, for years. And it was just, when we looked at all of the flow circulation, lift data, that always informs us on what we want to do next. And we had enough to uh, support uh, putting in this new lift and really feel it's going to be a vast improvement for our guests who love that terrain and, and have that uh, better connectivity into Lion's Head and to those back bowls. Yeah, so so guests who are familiar with the back bowls, they'll be familiar with the load area. It's right there near High Noon Express, but it goes to a very different area. So just talk a little bit more about where this lift will actually take skiers to and how that will improve the circulation all around Vail Mountain. Yeah, so the, this lift will, Sundown Express, will take you to the top uh, right by Wildwood Restaurant. So now you've got Chair 3, Chair 7, and now 17, all coming to that area uh, by Wildwood. So it's a great spot. You can go a lot of different directions from that place on the mountain. So a lot of improvements there. So that High Noon Express, that was the site of this famous viral video that we saw. It was actually just before COVID where there was just these massive lift lines up and down by High Noon Express. These things get a lot of attention. How frustrating is that for you? And how anomalous is an event like that where you see these monster lift lines? Well, I remember that day well, Stuart. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was in February of 2020. It was a Saturday. And we had just had one of our top, I think, three storms in Vail's history, just feet of snow. So everyone wanted to get and ski that terrain and that powder, which was, uh, it was amazing. Uh, But I would say it was a rare event to have that happen. I think everything lined up that day where we had those lines at uh, high noon. And it was frustrating because a a couple of photos were taken and uh, it went on social and that became kind of the narrative uh, and a story which only happened once and hasn't happened since. But that's that was just that day and the dynamics that played into it. And we're always, you know, committed and focused on the best possible experience here. And that day, those photos came out and and uh, the narrative got out there. Was that day in any way a catalyst for finally building Sundown Express? No, not, not that wasn't the primary reason. I, you know, as I mentioned before, that that lift had been in our master development plan for many years. And we just felt it was time and we wanted to make our guest experience the best it could be. And, and we went ahead with it. So let's uh, let's look at potential future projects here. So I'm looking at your 2018 master plan and sticking in the back bowls. There's a couple more upgrades that the master plan outlines as possible future development. So there's an upgrade to the Orient Express, which is another one of those uh, original high speed quads built in 1988. 
And then you have Mongolia Express, which is an area of the back bowls that's currently served by that mid-mountain or rather upper mountain Poma. I, I guess let's talk about Mongolia first. Why did you choose to build Sundown Express before Mongolia? And what is the potential for a Mongolia Express lift? Because that's a an area of the mountain that right now is just served by that little Poma lift. Yes, I think, I mean, the big difference for me is just usage of the, the lift in that terrain. Um, you know, Mongolia is, it's so special out there. And I think having that surface lift and for the guests to enjoy kind of endless powder out there, um, we feel it's fulfilling what we, it needs to fulfill right now. So that's not like, uh, upfront for me on, on the list for, to upgrade for those reasons. So we're keeping that in a current format for the, the near future and, but no, we can, uh, you know, approach that and change it at some point because it's in our development, master development plan. So looking at the master development plan, and I will have these maps on uh, the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. So if you're listening to this, you can pop over there and take a look. But how what would the vertical drop be over there for a potential Mongolia Express lift? Oh, I don't even know, Stuart, what that would be. I haven't studied it enough to know. Do you have any sense of where it would land or load? No, I haven't gotten that far on the details yet, only because we haven't really pursued that as a, like a next priority. So let's talk about Orient Express, which is between Mongolia and Teacup Express. So as I mentioned, that lift was built in 1988. You have another one born free on the on the front side that was built that same year. How big of a priority is that for you? And is there just is it just aging out or is there another motivator here for this upgrade? Well, I think I keep just anchoring to our master development plan. And it's really just it's a framework for us. Uh for that long-term planning and strategic approach to the mountain. So all of these things that uh, we're talking about that are reflected in that plan are, you know, they're forward-looking projects. Uh, there's extensive formal review with our, our forest service partners if we ever um, take those steps. But uh, I just haven't gotten into that detail of those items yet because they're not, uh, not in, in the near future as far as our, our current planning. As you look at the various projects in the master development plan, you have these two big lifts going online this year. Do you have a sense of which area of the mountain you would like to focus on next? Well, I think we're looking at Eagle Bond, which is our gala out of Lion's Head. That is such a, a major portal to the mountain and for the guest experience. So we'll look at that. Uh, I would say that'd probably be the next one I'm really focused on. And, uh, and we'll just keep going from there. Eagle Bond is a lift that's not just a ski lift, right? That's one that gets heavy use throughout the year. Right. That's our summer and winter uh, gondola. It does haul our freight to the top of the mountain for all of our restaurants. And so all of our food goes up and all of our recycle composting comes down. So it is a workhorse gondola and serves a lot of different purposes. So it's an important one for us. It's also a very interesting lift. It's a 12-passenger gondola. And you just don't see, I, I don't know if there are any others in the United States. No, that it's unique. I mean, it's one of our, you know, you compare Eagle Bond Gala to Gala 1 and the technology just changes so much over time. And that was just the design and the best, uh, you know, at the time when we got that gondola. So yeah, every time with age, you know, there's there's improvements. And uh, hopefully when we get to a point of either upgrading, replacing the Eagle Bond, we'll, we'll be able to capture those improvements. Are you pretty happy, Beth, overall with where the lift is and the line that it serves? I am for the gondola. Yes, it's um, there's not a lot of room down at the base because we have the Born Free Express adjacent to it, and we have our ski yard and ski school and everything 
staging out of there. It's it's a good alignment and we would just need to work with that. And if there are improvements we could make when we'd replace or upgrade that, we would certainly do that. Then right next to the Eagle Bond gondola, you have this this whole West Lion's Head proposal and there's a couple different options in the master development plan. Uh, one would be to sort of lengthen Pride Express and bring it down to the base. The other would be to have a separate West Lion's Head lift. I realize you're a ways out from actually announcing anything, but just talk about that area of the resort and what the problem is that you would be trying to solve with whatever lift configuration you land on at, at West Lion's Head. Yes, yeah, so the West Lion's Head lift I think you're referring to is is would be our next uh, big portal. It'd be our signature portal. So our our main portals are you know Golden Peak, Vail Village, Lion's Head, uh, and Cascade. Not so much of a major portal, but a portal. So this West Lion's Head lift would uh, would be a signature portal in in the vision of it. It's years out, of course, and I think it would it's complex and would need uh, you know a, a, quite a process to get it approved. But there is you know potential for a gondola that you know potentially take it up above twenty six. So instead of having where twenty six um, Pride drops you now, it's just a little bit below Eagle's Nest. So I think there would be an advantage to take it all the way up. So we wouldn't, wouldn't need that extra ski down to another lift to get to where you want to go. So the going back to the fixed grip lifts, Cascade Village is, uh, it's it's one of the last existing ones. And, and the master development plan does call for this to be replaced with a detachable. This is an interesting one because it's really just a a transportation lift down to the Cascade Village. Is it would the upgrade to a detachable just be to help with that downloading portion of it, or or is it just aging out and it would just be time to up to to replace that lift? Yes, I mean that that is our nostalgic. That's our nostalgic <laughs> lift over there. It, it does serve a you know it serves the Grand Hyatt Hotel, which is a big hotel there that anchors that. There is parking. I think the locals who know about it use that to access the mountain. And uh, we'd have to see, you know, I, I think it's another opportunity for us to have another portal, right? And uh, lessen the, the demand on, on lifts in the early morning uploads to access the mountains. So I think that one's not on my next highest priority, but it's something we're looking at and holistically when we look at our lift uh, package. When you, when you look at Born Free and Orient Express, both built in 1988, is there one of those that strikes you as more urgent than the other to, for a replacement? You know, those two aren't bubbling up as much as probably the Eagle Bond because we, with the Born Free, we got that redundancy there. So that actually works really well for us in our current state. But yeah, right now I'd be focusing on Eagle Bond. All right. So as I mentioned in the intro, Vail Mountain is enormous, over 5,000 acres. Nonetheless, the Master Development Plan does also spell out a few areas of the mountain where we could see potential terrain expansion. Most of that is back in Blue Sky Basin. Just talk about the the potential for development back there, which is still within your resort development boundary and in what we could eventually see if you decided to go that direction. Well, as it relates to that, <clears throat> that terrain expansion, Blue Sky, you know, we've done a lot of work with our MDP to understand uh, what that terrain would look like and how we could possibly integrate something like that into our existing terrain package. But we haven't done any assessing beyond that. It's... Um, it's, you know, we already have, as you mentioned, over 5,000 acres and plenty of capacity for skiers and riders. So that's that's in the long range view for, for me at this time. What do you think it would take to make any sort of additional trail development happen? Is that a, is it a volume and visitation thing? Is it just a matter of having resources 
where that aren't needed elsewhere in the portfolio. So kind of what's that process you go through to decide, okay, it's time to develop these trails that we do have the notion to develop at some point? Well, I think any anytime we, we take a, a step to replace a lift or add a restaurant or uh, widen a trail, whatever it may be, it's always leading with the guest experience and how the lift infrastructure or terrain can better connect our guests to where they want to go and to have a, a, an enhanced experience. So we lead with that and then we apply the data and then, then we start to prioritize, okay, what do we need for resources? Is the timing right? We need to get all the approvals from the Forest Service all those things come into play. So it, it's quite a process and, uh, and, and one we've gone through many times. So that, that's what, through my lens, is how, and our company's lens, is we lead with guest service and the experience, and then we start to apply our data, and then we get to our strategic planning. Yeah, looking at the master development plan, it looks like most of the potential is either in the back bowls, just a little bit down at the bottom of teacup bowl, and mostly in Blue Sky Basin. Would, would you say that, for the most part, the front part of Vail Mountain, the trail network is built out? Yes. I mean, the front side is tried and true. It flows beautifully. Um, there's always fine tuning and nuances, things we can do as, as we, we go forward. And we just work hand in hand with the Forest Service if we, we see opportunities there in that current footprint. So most of, from my point of view, it looks as though most of what you're, the development that's happening on the front side involves snowmaking, right? Obviously, also you'll be changing out lifts here and there, but the snowmaking footprint at Vail Mountain seems like something you're very deliberately building out. So just talk a little bit about snowmaking on Vail Mountain and how you've evolved that over the past several years and long term, what you're looking to do and, and also why, why it's time to start building out the snowmaking system at Vail. Yeah, so the, the snowmaking expansion took place in summer of 2019. That was my first year here as a, a COO. And it was, I think, North America's largest ever snowmaking enhancement. And what we did is we took a shift from our opening day package of being Born Free Express and Born Free on the lower part of the mountain. And we, we focused everything at the higher elevation above Midvale. And the reason for that is that many seasons, or not many, but some, if we had a warm fall, uh, we wouldn't be able to hit our opening day with Born Free because it was sat lower on the mountain. And those elevations make a difference in the early season because you have to have your temps. So what we did with this snowmaking expansion is we focused everything at the higher elevation, about 10,000 feet and above, which would allow more reliable, uh, more certainty around early season openings. And I have to say, since we put that in, we've hit our early season opening day ever since. So it was the right move. It's proving out to be a great strategic move for our mountain and keeping it at that higher elevation has really uh, been a, a game changer for us. As you look to grow out and evolve this system, Beth, what sort of, if any, water issues or shortages or permit issues are you facing? You know, we're not we're not facing any water issues at this time. We're we're definitely monitoring. Our goal is to always be the best stewards of any water that we use. And our snowmaking system is state of the art. It's got many weather stations within each of the, uh, the guns. And uh, so we are being very efficient, targeted, only using the amount of water we absolutely need. And then the good news is that our snowmaking, our snow, 75% goes back into the watershed. So we're storing it all winter. When we need it in the spring, it comes back down. And uh, so I, I think we feel good about that, but we're, we're very focused on, on, on being very efficient and we have the system that allows us to do that. 
All right, let's go back to the bottom of the mountain here and talk about housing. So for the listeners who haven't necessarily been following along with Vale's proposed housing development at East Vale, lay out the basics for us here, Beth. When did Vale Resorts find out that the company owned this parcel of land? Uh, what was the company proposing to build there? And how did that proposal come together with the town? And then ultimately, how did the deal fall apart? Yeah, so I'll start with, we have a housing crisis here in Vail, and we're not the only mountain town to be facing that challenge, but we just don't have enough affordable housing units for our employees to live where they work. So I'll start there. The East Vail project was six years in the making in collaborating with the town staff and the elected leaders over that time. And we looked at that parcel of land as being able to bring on more units near to where they work on the mountain. We zoned the majority of it, 75% of that parcel, for natural area preservation. And we worked with wildlife experts on how to mitigate any impacts to the wildlife. And we were only proposing to build on five acres of that, of that site. So those six years of collaboration with the town were awesome. And um, I'm hopefully we can get back to a place where this uh, project comes to fruition. And how big was the parcel altogether? It's like 23 acres, roughly. So you so you hammered out a deal with the town to build, I believe it was 160-some beds of employee housing on five acres of land. The rest of the land, talk about what you were going to do with the rest of the land. Uh, we were putting the rest of the land into natural area preservation, so we would mitigate any impacts to wildlife in that area. So that was our intent. And so the... And correct me if any of this, if I get it wrong. So the the town and Vail Mountain and Vail Resorts agreed that you would build this housing development. And then this spring, you're ready to build it. And what happens? Well, we had during the time that we had an approved project, we were ready to go in the spring. But over that period of time, there were new elected officials who had, you know, a different point of view about this project and opposed it. So that took it in a different direction. And so that's where it is today. It's in the courts today. And I'd say of setting that aside, the Eastville housing project, I, I want everyone to know that we have a great collaboration with our town and town of Vail on everything that we do, because this community wouldn't run on any given day without our, our collaboration. So this is one, just one project that's, that's uh, sitting there. And again, we need housing. It's a crisis here and we'll continue to pursue any and all opportunities. So the town's concern is with bighorn sheep habitat specifically, and that that habitat extends well beyond the parcel that Vale is going to build on. The town continues to issue permits for single family homes on that land. I, I mean, how frustrating is that from your point of view when when it seems as though there's different standards set for different sorts of buildings? Well, I I, I would say. I've felt in this process by setting 75% of the parcel aside with our focus on not having impacts to the wildlife in that area was, was we led with that. We care about it. So um, yeah, frustrating. Yes, I would say that would be a, a feeling that I've, I've had, and, but we felt we're doing the right thing and uh, only building on a small portion of this uh, parcel to, to make sure that the environmental impacts are, are minimal. So the town has said that they've offered Vale Mountain Vale Resorts alternate sites for this project. Have you looked at those sites? Would they be suitable for the project you're proposing? Well, we feel that we need every bed and the Eastville housing 
parcel was incremental to all the wonderful things that the town is doing. So we want to look at everything. And uh, we have communicated with our elected officials that we're, we're ready and willing to sit down and talk with them on all potential ways to, to get more affordable housing units here in the community. The town of Vail did offer Vail Mountain Vail Resorts $12 million for that parcel. Uh, why did Vail Mountain turn that down? Well, we are focused on getting more affordable housing here so our employees can live where they work. So it wasn't about the money. It's about getting more affordable beds here so we can staff our mountain and deliver the world-class experience that everyone expects. So again, Beth, you've lived in Vail Valley for 37 years. Just thinking back to 1985, how what, what was the housing environment like when you first moved to Vail? And how has that evolved over the decades? And, and what does it look like today? Well, I remember, I mean, it's always been tough. I, I think I just opened up a newspaper when I arrived here and found something by luck. But I think it was tough then, and it's only gotten tougher as, as we've gotten to this point. But I think you know, when you look at where we sit, we've got Vail Pass to the east, Dow Junction to the west, mountains north and south. If, if we don't have affordable housing here where, where our employees work, they're, they're now commuting. And, you know, we start our shifts at early, 6.30 in the morning, so we can get the mountain prepped for our guests. And when you add a commute of a 45 minutes to an hour on each end of a day, add weather to it, it's, uh, it's tough to attract employees to do that. And it's uh, not the best experience for those wanting to work here. So thinking long-term, how do you think that the town and the mountain can work together over the coming decades? Because this problem is not going away, right? You, you have more people continuing to move to the mountains, particularly driven by COVID. And you, like you said, there, you, you have some geographic constraints, right? And you have on top of that some, some other cultural constraints and, and the, the desire to conserve open land, which is all understandable. But how do you go about forging a better relationship long-term so that these sorts of things don't just end up in the void of the courts for years and years where you're actually building new beds for employees? Right. Well, I think, I mean, any community, it all comes down to, to trust and collaboration and an aligned approach to what we want this community to be. And, uh, you know, there's some great people here. Uh, and I think for me, it's just I want to be accessible, keep our lines of communication open and know, letting everyone know our commitment to to finding more affordable housing because we're all in this together. Uh, and and we're all here for the purpose of making this the best possible uh, world class destination resort that there is. So I think uh, when I think about that and answering that question, those things come in, into mind. You know, looking around the continent, I, I see different models up in Banff in Canada, and I realize it's a different country, but uh, they, if you want to live in the national park, there's a, a, a proof of employment clause to that, right? And that helps keep things affordable. And, and Aspen's done a lot of things where they incentivize locals to, to house employees through a variety of means. How much time do you spend studying what other communities are doing and, and trying to take best practices from them to see if any of those would work in Vail? We, we spend a lot of time looking at what other communities are doing, and some are doing some really creative things. And I think uh, we try to learn from them, see if we can apply it here in a different version of what they're doing. But we're always uh, always looking at the other communities. Well, what are you seeing this working in Vail? Jason Blevins write this, uh, of the Colorado Sun writes about this a lot. And essentially, this evolution of kind of two side-by-side markets of, of housing, where one is the 
people who spend two weeks a year there and have the 10 bedroom mansion or whatever, and those are market rate. And then you sort of have a locals market that might have some restrictive deeds as far as where those folks live and, and, and that sort of thing evolving at Vail over the past few years. And, and I'm not obviously familiar with all the details there, but, but what is working in Vail and, and, and what do you think could be scaled up potentially to help provide more housing in the community? Yeah, well, I think we can look at it in different ways. We can look at kind of Vail, Vail proper, uh, which is where we're trying to get more housing for employees so they can live closer to where they work. Uh, that doesn't just benefit the mountain, but also the town. And then there's a broader view of going, you know, down valley, as we say, to Eagle Gypsum and everything in between. And I, you know, every bed matters. Every bed helps all of us, uh, not just the mountain, but all of the the businesses and, and community members here. So we're looking broadly. We're looking, you know, here locally in, in the uh, core town of Vail. Uh, but everything's on the table. And I think we just got to keep pursuing every option there is to, to make sure we're doing it in the right way and that we're solving this problem. So one of the options that's really compelling to me is the Evervale project, which has been in the past approved for development. Just talk to us, Beth, about the potential for Evervale and where that parcel is and what the, you know, how big it is and what it would take to get that going. Well, you know, that has been on the plans for quite some time. You're right. It was approved. My office actually sits right on that parcel here in Westville. So it, it would be a the vision would be a, a signature portal to the mountain, and it would it's pretty complex. It would take a lot of cooperation and collaboration from um, the town to transform this area. And but that's that's kind of the vision of what uh, Evervale would be. Would it be mostly housing? Would it be a mix of retail? Would it, would it also be a portal into the ski area itself? Kind of what, what is the full scope of what we're looking at here, and how big is that parcel? And I'm not exactly sure on the acres of this parcel, but I do know it does serve uh, lift access to the mountain. It serves uh, employee housing, commercial, parking. Uh, it has all of those really critical uh, components to it that would make it a viable and signature portal to the mountain. The lift coming out of here as it's drawn would take you up to past the Cascade lift, what we were talking about earlier. It would take you all ideally all the way up to Eagle's Nest to the ridge and get people on their way without having to ski down and connect to another lift. So as far as priorities go, it sounds like this is not something that's imminent. What do you think it would take to get this project moving? Well, I think it'll take a lot of just cooperation, collaboration with our community here to uh, to re-engage in this and what it could be for the town. And, and it's the goal, if this ever comes to fruition, is to make it a really signature portal that that does address parking, how employee housing, commercial and access to the mountains. Uh, so all of those components are contemplated. Switching here to tickets and passes, Beth, and we'll wrap up our conversation today on this topic. I'm not sure. Do you happen to remember how much a season pass was at Vail Mountain when you arrived in the 80s? Oh, I don't remember. I remember I had a, an employee pass, which was awesome. I think I right. just read recently, you know, because it's our, we just opened, is it in December 15th of 19? 1962, it was $5. Okay, for the season pass? No, for a lift. For, lift. for the lift ticket, okay. That, but you have to remember, it was a tiny little footprint. So I just read that uh, when we were looking at the history books. A pass, I don't remember, but I do remember as an employee, it was pretty special to have an employee pass. It was more expensive back then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the year before the Epic Pass came online in 2008, the the season pass of Vail Mountain was something like eighteen hundred dollars, 
in many ways, it's cheaper than ever now because the season pass, uh, the Epic Pass for this year was uh, started at 800 and something. But the day ticket prices have gone way, way up. You're hitting 275 this year for Vale and Beaver Creek. Actually, Steamboat had stolen the the headline from you last year at 269, and, and I thought you'd let that ride. But <laughs> Vale and Beaver Creek, again, have the, the record this year. But to make the point, Steamboat and Deer Valley are not far behind at 269. So 275, wow, that's a lot of money for one day of skiing. What, what are your thoughts on that, Beth? How did we get here? Well, I think a lot of people can focus on that number, you know, but we have so many other options that, that create such value. I mean, you can get a seven-day Epic Day Pass, I think, today for $85 on your daily ticket. So I I, I would encourage everyone to look at our EpicPass.com because there's all kinds of options and incredible value to ski on the mountain. Do you still get a lot of people walking up and, and how do you, do you ever have to handle those one-on-one? I mean, I don't personally, um, you know, you can walk up to the ticket window like you could walk up to the airport, I guess, and and buy a ticket. We don't see a lot of it, but it still happens. So that option's there. But I think we're really seeing people start to move into our past products because they're very compelling and really offer the best value in the business. All right. So finish up here on the, as we're talking about lift tickets. Vail Resorts is limiting the quantity of lift tickets sold at every one of its ski areas this season. As of today, I just checked your website before this interview, November 14th. I don't see any sellouts noted on your website. That doesn't mean there aren't any. I it, Just talk a little bit, Beth, about the factors that Vail Mountain will use to decide to determine the limit on the number of lift tickets it sells each day and how often you anticipate actually selling out. Yeah, it's a lever we have in order, really our goal is to preserve the guest experience and especially for our our loyal pass holders. And, you know, when I look at, you know, making that decision or pulling that lever, it's it's not just the number of people we have on the mountain, but also how much terrain do we have available? What's our lift uh, configuration? Uh, how is the terrain connecting? So there's all kinds of factors that, that I will look at when we decide to limit the lift ticket sales on any given day. So um, I have a lot of input and, and uh, information when I make those decisions. All right, Beth. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. Congratulations on getting things moving. It's been awesome to watch. I'm, I'm stuck out here on the snowless East Coast, but <laughs> it's been awesome to watch things ramp up out there. So I hope you have another awesome season and push through till May again. So good luck and congratulations on that 60th anniversary. That's really amazing. So thank you for your time today. Thanks so much, Stuart. Appreciate it. That's Beth Howard, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Vail Mountain, Colorado. Beth, thank you so much for that. That's someone who has seen both Vail Mountain and the town of Vail evolve and change firsthand for nearly two-thirds of their existence. It's a big, big job, and it's not an easy one, and I really appreciate you, Beth, for sharing that insight and experience with us. And I appreciate all of you for listening. I am still catching up on my pod queue. I have a few more in the can. Open Snow CEO Joel Gratz and I go deep on weather. Then ski columnist Sean Sutner and I rap about New England skiing. I also recorded a live pod with JP General Manager Steve Wright at the Snowbound Expo in Boston last week. And next week I will have a chat with SMI Snowmakers President Joe Vanderkellen. Very, very pumped for all of those. 
the fastest way to get those episodes is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.